welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. I would like to read Luke 1, verse 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Verse 29. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over his house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray, please. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, that takes unprepared people like all of us. The great enormity of of standing behind a pulpit and, and giving your word, Father, is not lost on me. I need your help, Lord. I need you to work today. I pray for that, Father, in the name of our Son. Amen. Good morning. As I said, I've entitled my service, Sermon, A Remarkable Response. Can anybody tell me what happened in South Africa on the 11th of January, 1974? Anybody? Nia, Nia, that was for 1969. Okay. Find a friend, anybody? (laughs) All right, good start. The Rosenkovitz sextuplets were born in Cape Town. And immediately they made world headlines. On their first birthday, they were the first set of sextuplets, six, to celebrate their first birthday together. And in three years' time, they're going to make world headlines all over again because they're going to be 50 years old. The world is consumed with unusual births, real or imagined. Before we discuss that further... Let's just spend a little bit of time getting to know the author of this gospel, Luke, because this will help give us a foundation for the other sermons that are coming up in the series. The gospel was written about 25 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Regarding the content of the investigation of the gospel, Luke says in chapter 1, verse 2, that he undertook... uh, investigation. He interviewed people, and it is not beyond the realms of possibility that he interviewed Mary, the mother of the Lord. Luke was undoubtedly a companion of Paul, and in Colossians 4.14 we read, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. I have no doubt that between Luke and Paul there was a wonderful symbiotic relationship As Luke traveled with Paul, he was discipled by him. And being Paul, Paul had need of a physician. And Luke was there to treat him. 
Tradition tells us that Luke was born in Antioch, Syria, and was of Greek descent. Some say his written Greek is possibly the best in the New Testament. After all, he wrote more than any other author, nearly 37,000 words. He is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. And this is a factual statement. Being a doctor, Luke was intelligent, deliberate, and precise. Would you want to go to a doctor who's not? Famed, not only that, he was a supreme historian, a famed English historian of the late 18th and early 19th century, Sir William Ramsey, on reading the book of Acts, had this to say, a highly imaginative and carefully colored account of early Christianity. It was his nice way of saying rubbish. He said this as an unbelieving skeptic. To his credit, he undertook a further, deeper, more exact study of the book of Acts. And as a believer, he wrote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in regard to his trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they stand the hardest test. He was undoubtedly highly educated and probably came from a financially secure environment. Anyway, back to our point of with regard to conceptions, unusual conceptions, real or imagined, we're all probably aware that the first C-section or cesarean section was performed on Julius Caesar's mom, right? He was the first person to be born by cesarean section. Well, on studying for this, I discovered that that possibly is a myth. The Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the various Eastern religions, etc., all have fables and myths about gods, small g, having relations with humans and their offspring being born of virgins. The mother and child religions abound in fables, even today. How did this happen? How did this all come about? Cast your minds back to Genesis 3, 14 to 19, where the judgment is put upon Adam and Eve and upon the serpent. Not only is the judgment put upon the serpent, it's put upon the indweller and the empowerer of the serpent, Satan. Revelation 19. Uh, sorry, 12.9 tells us that. In verse 15 of, gener- of Genesis 3, not generation, we see a prophecy regarding the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Seed is always elsewhere referred to as coming from man. In John 8.33 to 37, a discourse takes place between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. He tells them that the truth will make them free. They say, we don't need to be free. We have Abraham. We are free. We are Abraham's descendants. He goes on to tell them that he knows they are Abraham's descendants. Descendants and seed is the same word. The seed of the woman will suffer a minor blow. We know that. While the indweller of the serpent will suffer a mortal wound. Satan knows that what is in store for him. He knows the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as found in Isaiah 7.14, read to us by joining from Matthew 1. He knows God is sovereign and that God's plan and purpose will be fulfilled regardless. Knowing this, he, Satan, the deceiver of mankind, will do whatever he can to mislead and cast doubt on the veracity of Scripture. The virgin conception of the God-man 
the Lord Jesus Christ is a doctrine that the whole Christian faith is built upon. A holy God paying the just price for sinful man. As the Father pours out his righteous judgment on the humanity of his Son, the Son of God takes the punishment we deserve. And for the redeemed, he imputes his righteousness to us. A kingdom transfer takes place, if you will. The elect, and regardless on your position of the doctrine of salvation, the elect, born into the hateful, dark, devilish kingdom of Satan, are transferred into their loving, hopeful, joyous kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. If there is no virgin conception, none of this can happen. And the Lord Jesus Christ is higher. It is no wonder that Satan tries to minimize this virgin conception and make it comparable to myths. I honestly can't begin to tell you the number of unbelievers I have witnessed to who come up with objections to the gospel. Understandable. Often about the virgin conception, which they say sounds like myths borrowed from ancient cultures. The same is true for the universal Noahic flood. This should not surprise us. As in 2 Corinthians 4.3, Paul tells us that the, if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing, whose mind, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded. A most remarkable myth, a counterfeit, if you like, was reported by, by in the 26th of December 2019, edition of the Sydney Morning Herald. In their purpose of trying to show that the virgin conception and birth of the Lord is pure myth, they say the following, and a whole lot more I don't want to go into. Let me quote, the Pharaoh Roman god Attis was born of a virgin Nana. I thought Nana was the dog in Peter Pan. On December 25th, it resonates because he went on to be killed and was resurrected straight from Satan. Interestingly, in his outstanding book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, Dr. Dwight Pentecost gives several solid reasons why a late December or early January birth of Christ is possible. There is so much theology in these verses, we can literally spend more than a year going through them, and we will not exhaust the text. Let's read from verse 26 again. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth. Gabriel, his name can mean great as well as hero of God. And in the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, he is sent to the city of Galilee. No, Galilee was not a uh, Nazareth was not a city. It was a small little town. Gabriel is only one of two angels mentioned in Scripture. He's mentioned here and in Daniel 8 and 9. Michael, the other angel, is mentioned in Jude in Revelation 12. The province or region of Galilee was economically a very thriving place. It was like Kateng because of its proximity to the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth, however, was a pure community of little or no importance was lined up with the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. It was, 30, it was situated 35 kilometers plus minus from each one. Gabriel 
was sent by God to this nondescript place that is not even mentioned in the Old Testament, the Jewish Talmud, or the writings of the first century historian Josephus. Most commentators think that it could have been could have had a population of about 400. It was so unknown that Luke had to tell the recipient of this gospel, the first recipient, Theophilus, that it was in Galilee. In John 1, 50, 45 and 56, we read, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We had found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replied, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That is how Nazareth was conceived at that time. Gabriel is not only sent by God to this unknown town or village, but to the recipient of this message, a poor young girl between 13 and 16 possibly, probably living in a parent's house. She is betrothed to Joseph, and both she and Joseph are descendants of King David. As Jewish custom is, she was, they were in an engagement for, should have been an engagement for about a year. I believe she had the pleasing characteristics of humility. I cannot believe otherwise. After all, does not the Bible tell us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 4.16? Please, please don't think that God only saves and poor people. Luke as well as the brothers James and John, were probably from wealthy backgrounds. However, wealth can be a stumbling block to salvation, and not just that, also to Christian service. If the redeemed wealthy consider themselves as being the ones who got the wealth alone, that's pride. Having said that, I know of extremely wealthy believers who are huge financial givers of ministries. I imagine at this time, the time when Gabriel appeared to her, her thoughts were often centered on, on her beloved Joseph and their impending wedding and the exciting seven-day feast that would follow, which was another Jewish tradition. I doubt she was thinking far ahead to being a parent. In the message delivered from God to Mary by Gabriel, it is so important for us to know that Mary was a virgin that Luke recorded it twice in verse 27. Let's read verse 27 again. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. This brings us to another point, the messenger's first part of the divine message. And I call Gabriel the messenger because that is what an angel is. It is recorded for us in verse 28. Having entered the house, he says, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you amongst women. There can be no doubt that Mary became the most blessed woman of all time, chosen by a sovereign God to give birth to the humanly perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who at the incarnation, his birth, not only continued to be 100% perfect God, but took on humanity and became 100% perfect man, rests remaining for the rest of his life. Two natures, one person. When I was at school, a little bit after Frech, he was at school in 
two centuries ago, um, we were taught that the Indian and Atlantic Oceans on their journey around South Africa lied at Cape Point. It's now an accepted fact that they lie, they collide at Cape Agulhas, okay? They don't come in and see an imaginary line at Cape Agulhas, put on the brakes, do a three-point turn, and go the other way. No, they come, they collide, they mingle. The Atlantic and the Indian Oceans mingle. Two oceans coming together mingle. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. 100% perfect God, 100% perfect man, not mingling to make up a third nature. That's heresy. Take note, Gabriel does not fall down at Mary's feet and worship her. She was not the queen of heaven. She is not. She will not be the queen of heaven. Let's have a look at some of the words Gabriel used. Well, actually only one. In verse 28, we read, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you amongst women. The word that we're going to have a look at is highly favored. In the Greek, it is charitu, and is from the root, from the root charis, from where we get our word grace. It is found, as far as I can remember, only one other time in Ephesians 1, six, where it refers to all believers. Ephesians 1.6 reads, To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us, same word, accepted in the beloved. One commentator says the phrase rejoice highly favored one could literally be read to read grace. You who are highly graced. That's Mary. Not as the Catholics translate it. Hail Mary, full of grace. This is from their Latin Vulgate version. They then come up with a view that says Mary is the giver of grace. That, in my opinion, is blasphemy. Mary, regarding grace, was just like us, a sinner who needed grace from God. God is the giver of grace. We are the receiver of it. Mary is, it was exactly the same. No doubt she was a devout Jew who wanted to serve her Lord, but the choice God made was his because he is sovereign. Mary like us, needed God's grace as she was unworthy, just as we are. In verse 29, we see Mary being troubled by Gabriel's greeting. She knew she was not worthy. She knew that for 400 years since the closing of Malachi, there had been no such recorded angelic visitation. She did not know her relative Elizabeth was pregnant. Messenger's second part of the message. As we have just seen, Mary is in a state of concern regarding the message. She is scared. Put yourself in her position. You are in your parents' house, going about your daily business, thinking about the future with your beloved, your beloved fiancé. She must have been. All of, a, all of a sudden, in front of you stands a person such as you have never seen in your life. By his sudden appearance, you are already in a state of shock, concern, and fear. He tells you God, had his, God has his eyes on you. You have become the focus of his special attention. It's enough to unnerve anybody. Gabriel then tells her not to be afraid. Literally stop being afraid, he says. We all have fears of one type or another. I have an irrational fear of heights. I don't know why we buy a refrigerator. Because if I watch TV, the higher I see them climb, the colder my feet get. I have, it's irrational. I have a fear of it. 
I have a healthy fear when I stand behind this, whether it's to read or whatever it is, because this is a sacred responsibility. Fears can cause us to act in a self-preserving way that is not God-honoring. Think of Abram. Did it twice. White lies. Lies to deceive. We don't see this reaction from Mary. The message from the Lord is going to turn her life upside down. It will bring shame to her, to Joseph, and certainly to Mary's family. Incorrect shame, but shame nonetheless. She will suffer humiliation for God's glory. No doubt she was stunned about. I think this is evident from John 8, 41, further in the discourse we looked at previously. The Pharisees tell him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are not born of fornication. What a dig at Christ. That's all it was. If Jesus was the object of such horrible speculation and untruths regarding his birth, Mary would have been also. Folks, please, don't ever get involved in gossip or in innuendo. Don't do it. Don't listen to it. Don't perpetrate it. It's not good for you. Certainly not for the one whose character is being besmirched. And most of all, it's not pleasing to God. Don't do it. Mary is going to be honored in a way as no woman was ever be done before or since. With that honor came a terrible social stigma. When we have sudden unplanned changes in our lives, changes God wants to use for his glory and our ultimate good, we often have great difficulty in accepting these changes and perhaps most of the time even feel a little bit sorry for ourselves. It's very easy to question, why, Lord, instead of questioning, how, Lord? Lord, how can you get glory out of my unplanned circumstance and then seek solace and comfort from others? The word and personal prayer. And above all, be thankful that we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and our home is in glory. After Gabriel gives her this gentle command to stop fearing, the same command he gave to Zacharias early in the chapter. He tells her the most incredible news imaginable. She's totally unprepared for what she's going to hear. He tells her again in verse 30 that she's going to experience God's grace in the most remarkable way. And from verse 31 to 33, he informs her of this. Wow, what a lot to take in. That she will conceive a son. He tells her that... She must name him Jesus. Jehovah saves is what Jesus means, or the Lord is salvation. He tells her he will be great. That applies to his person, his message, and his work. He tells her that he will be the son of the highest, the son of God, referring to his deity and therefore his eternality. He tells her that he will sit on the throne of his father David. In the literal future, 1,000-year millennial theocratic kingdom. Imagine being told that about the child you're going to be given birth to. He tells her he will rule over his people forever. Being God, therefore being eternal, his kingdom rule cannot end and, as importantly, cannot be overthrown. She could have been thinking about the Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the Jews acknowledge, will be the son of David. 
will be a descendant of David. Matthew 22 and verse 42, Jesus asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah going to be or the Christ? And their answer is David's. I'm sure that's what she knew. That's what she was brought up to understand. Messiah is the Hebrew Christ, or more technically correct, the Christ, or the Christ is the Greek translation. Verse 34, I believe, gives us an absolute clue to what Mary's thoughts were. She was primarily thinking how Gabriel, what Gabriel said could have happened. How on earth could she get pregnant? An indication she understood the immediacy of Gabriel's prophecy. Mary asks, how can this be since I do not know a man? A simile for being a virgin. In the context of the times, perhaps putting it in our words as well, Mary was saying, as I'm not married and thus a virgin, context of the times, how can I shortly become pregnant? It's just not possible. Biologically, it's not possible. She knew that. The messenger's third part of the divine message. In verse 35, Gabriel answers her and tells her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And as Matthew said in chapter 1, verse 18, She, that's Mary, was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We can get all tied up in what does it mean that Jesus is called the Son of God. <sighs> the amount of books and the contention that takes place regarding this. In his perfect, sinless humanity, in the most miraculous way, Jesus is conceived by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In his perfect, sinless humanity, the eternal God the Son, the Son of God, Creator God, becomes the Son of God in His humanity. To my mind, that is the miracle of miracles. In His deity, Hebrews 1 tells us He is the express image of the Father and the brightness of His glory. He has the same nature and essence being as God the Father, but a different identity. He is the eternal Son of God the second person of the Trinity of God, the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Truly great is the mystery of godliness. Luke gives us more indication of the manner of the virgin conception than any other writer. After all, he is a doctor. It is something I believe the early church knew and taught. In Acts 2.42 we read, that at the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of them came to know the Lord, and they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Matthew, being an apostle, this would have been taught, been well taught. It is foundational to our faith. Paul is the third New Testament writer to support this truth. In Galatians 4, 4, and 5, he writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of son. Remember I told you doctors are deliberate and precise. When I was courting Mariette, I was a full-time student, and we were going through the book of Galatians. And 
Remem I had her memorize this. And like an idiot, I gave my Bible to her so that she could, no, I thought, I've got this verse, so that she could listen to me. Oh, every little thing. And she was right. No, it's not like this. It's got to be like that. Doctors are deliberate and precise. I've already alluded to you the fact that as Jesus, the man, did not, he did not have a human father. He did not have a sin nature. I affirm this. I am I ever not saying that we as men alone pass on our sin nature to our children. I think there can be no support of this view. It's a popular view. In some way that I'm unable to explain the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and her being overshadowed by God ensured that she did not pass on her sin nature to the Lord. The virgin conception assures that by real human birth, a member of our race, the only perfect member of our race, as well as his creator, is born. What a miracle. I also don't hold to the view that Mary would not have gone through labor pains that accomplish every natural birth. Again, Genesis 3. Truly great is the mystery of godliness. Paul says it. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Why is the virgin conception so critical to our faith? I will just mention one of the many, many, many reasons. And even in mentioning this one, it's only briefly. As mentioned earlier, if Jesus was conceived by a man, he would have a sin nature. And his birth would not have been unique as it was, the unique Son of God in the flesh. He could in no understanding of the word said to be holy, as Gabriel said he would. He could not be if he was Joseph's biological son, or as, as has become popular in liberal circles today, that Mary had sexual relations with a Roman soldier, and Jesus was the result of that relationship. It's preposterous. The virgin con if the virgin conception did not happen, Jesus could not be God. He could not be our Savior. We would have no hope, and the Bible would not be the Word of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13-19, that if there be no resurrection, we of all people are most pitiful. If there be no resurrection at the end of his earth, if there be no sinless virgin conception at the beginning of his life, we of all must pitiful. Let's just look at the need of a sinless Savior again. The problem is sin. Sin separates us from fellowship with God. To have fellowship with God, we need to be righteous, to have a holy standing with God. You all know these verses. Romans 3 tells us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none righteous. No, not one. Romans 5.12 reads, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed on to all men, for all have sinned. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We have just reiterated something we all know, that we are sinners. That indisputable fact stares back at us every day when we look in the mirror. Let's not forget that. Exodus 34.7 tells us that God will not clear the guilty. The guilty which is us, which is everybody, 
will not receive a pardon. There is a penalty for sin, a punishment, if you will, that God demands. Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us this penalty must be paid. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us Christ paid the penalty. For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being being made alive by the Spirit, by himself, small s, not capital S, as some Bibles have it. Romans states, But God demonstrates his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Verses that we're all familiar with. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. I've just shared the gospel. Sometimes it's important for us to go through the gospel again. The Lord asked his disciples in Luke 16 who they say he is. Peter, and I love Peter, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord's reply to Peter is, God gave you that. You wouldn't have come up with that by yourself. Salvation is all of God. Salvation is all of God. But in a mysterious way, our wills are also involved. In John 3, 16, we all know this. The verse reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, it is so hard reading verses from the New King James Version. And these are verses that you know in your mind in the King James Version. So you start reading and you start saying the King James instead of the New King James. In Romans 10, 13, the Bible tells us, For whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. In John 1, 12, we read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe on his name. Our will somehow is a part of accepting, and it's all of God. Great is the mystery of godliness. Back to our text. The messenger's fourth part of the divine message, verse 36 and 37. Gabriel tells Mary that her old relative, Elizabeth, who had never conceived, is six months pregnant. He does this to encourage her regarding the truth of God's message to her. The miracle of Elizabeth's birth, the miracle of her pregnancy, shows nothing is impossible with God. And what he said to her, Mary, would happen. Let's put this last statement in context. Nothing is impossible with God. I believe and strongly believe with all my heart, it's a conviction, that since the finish of the penning of John of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that apart from the miracle of salvation, that miracles have ceased until they appear again in the relation. Those of you who watch Strange Fire, and there were a couple of you, can affirm this. This brings us to our last point and to my title, a remarkable reply. Behold, this is Mary talk. Behold, the maidservant, slave, if you will, let it be to me according to your word. 
John MacArthur states regarding Mary's reply, this is one of the most remarkable statements of a person's faith in the whole of the Bible, if not the most remarkable. I've just paraphrased him, but that's generally what he said. Mary knows that being pregnant before marriage is punishable by death. This according to Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 22. She has no idea how her beloved Joseph will take this news. What will her parents and relatives think? She knows her life as she planned it is over. Her life as she planned it. All she wants to do, knowing all of this, all she wants to do is please God by loving others. What about us? Can we say that? That regardless of what happens in our life, we want to please him by loving others. This Christmas, which is around the corner, do you celebrate because of the receiving of giving of gifts? Sometimes it's better to receive than give. Christmas must be the most widely celebrated event of all time. Unfortunately, generally, sadly, it's a gigantic human holiday. Or it's become a gigantic human holiday. As believers, let's celebrate it for what it is. Remembering the most monumental event in human history. Christmas is about God the Son becoming the Son of God in flesh. So that we could become adopted children of God. If this message describes you, if you are the adopted child of God, Pass this message on. It's not ours to keep close to our chest and not share it. If this does not describe you, speak to somebody that can help you with this most incredible truth. May the Lord bless you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the enormity of the incredible Christmas story, Lord. We thank you for the conception, the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the price paid on Calvary for us. And Father, we ask and we pray that you give us no peace, that you stir us up to share the gospel with those who don't. We thank you in the name of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I once was lost in darkest night If thought I knew the way The sin that promised joy and light Had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own A rebel to your will And if you had not loved me first Different to the cause, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace.
Jesus is 